had a crazy travel week. My buddies in the Bottle Rockets invited me to do some shows with them. We went up into the upper Midwest in the dead of winter, and there was a whole lot of snow, and it was very cold. I believe it was two below zero in Madison, Wisconsin. But we played in Madison, St. Louis, Chicago, Champaign, Illinois. And there was the first gig was in Columbia, Missouri, and I was driving up from Nashville. And it started snowing and had freezing rain and ice on the roads while I'm on the highway. I drove three hours and got less than 100 miles. And somewhere in uh, Kentucky, I pulled off the road to get gas. When I went to get back on the road, the highway was closed down and uh, they wouldn't let me back on because of all the ice. So I actually missed that gig. I wasn't able to make it to Columbia, Missouri. And I apologize to those of you who wanted to see me there. It's the first time I remember ever missing a gig. But um, the rest of the gigs were great, including one of the best gigs I've ever had in Chicago. Just wonderful people. Got to meet a lot of you folks, folks who listen to this show. And I appreciate everybody saying nice things. But man, it feels really good to be home. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is John Langford. John is a singer and a songwriter and a visual artist who's based in Chicago. You can find out everything you need to know about John at johnlangford.de. I met up with John when I was at the hideout in Chicago. We agreed to meet before my sound check, and we were trying to find a quiet place to do this, but... You know, it's a bar. It was the only place that we had to get together, and um, there were people walking through, and there's a lot of noises you might hear in the background. We were next to a wooden stairs, and you sometimes hear people in combat boots stomping up and down the stairs. So I apologize if that's a little bit distracting, but if you hear something in the background, that's what it is. But if you haven't seen any of John's paintings before, I think you should get on the Google machine and look them up. They're, they're wonderful. He has a, a very distinctive style, and I enjoy them. And you've probably seen his work on a lot of your favorite band's album covers over the years. But I really enjoyed chatting with John. He's a, he's a good guy, and he's very interesting and has a pretty fun background. So we should jump into it. Here's John Langford. Yeah, I'm from Newport in South Wales, which is the little seaport town, uh, about 12 miles east of Cardiff and about 12 miles west of England. But um, my, it's it's Wales, but if you tell people in Wales you're from Newport, they say you're not really Welsh. Really? Yeah. Why is that? Because there's no no. I never heard anyone speaking Welsh in in Newport. It's it's a proper sort of seaport town. It's like it was always interested in it's not like a valley town the valley towns are where all the coal mines are and that's you know sheep 
rugby choirs, all that stuff. And then down, down where we were, it was always a bit more. I, I'd say it was co cosmopolitan, but that sounds a bit poncy, really. You know, we didn't think of ourselves as cosmopolitan, but compared to like six miles up the road, it actually it was. You know, looking back on it, but it's provincial. You know, it's like you know, it's a when I went to college, uh, I was delightfully provincial. That's what somebody said about me. <laughs> Delightfully provincial. I think it was a. I think it was a. I think it was a compliment. But I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I've played in uh, at Le Pub, Le Pub in uh, Newport. Have you been there? Have I been there? Oh my god, Le Pub is is one of the. You know, Newport's always had great venues. Actually, it, it didn't have any venues when I was living there. When I was like 18, I moved up to Leeds to go to art school. And at the same year, punk rock kind of broke out all over the place. And after that, I'd go back, like, you know, loads of weekends. And all my friends in Newport now are from uh, from people I met because of the punk rock stuff. And the back guys are in bands and guys I'd meet at clubs. And there's a ton of really good clubs. And uh, one of the really great ones was called TJ's that just shut down. But that was like this big sort of... Very interested in American music. Like I said, a seaport town. Always interested in stuff from, you know, far away. Yeah, eyes fixed on the horizon. And uh, the pub sort of come up and taken over from where TJ's left off. But the, the owner of TJ's was actually a merchant seaman. Who's, and his dad was from the Seychelles and his mum was from Pilgwethley, which is the area down by the docks where I always say was the area my mother didn't want me to go to, but that was a yeah, kind of tough part of town by the docks with everything that sailors want. You know, when you get off the boat, everything immediately at hand that a sailor might be interested in. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But also, it's, it's, you know, but it's interesting because it's, um, it's where Joe Strummer hung out immediately before he, he formed the one on ers and moved down to uh, London. He was just hanging out in Newport. He was a grave digger in Newport. And, I met him a few times and we talked about Newport and I always thought he'd been to the art school but he wasn't at the art school because it was a big art school right in the centre of town and it was, a, it was quite a scene, you know, when I, when I was a kid there was a lot of parties but there's not much of a music scene. Yeah, I opened for The Clash. Yeah, The Three Johns in 19... I can't remember which year it was. It was the year when... It was the year when The Clash weren't terribly good. When Mick Jones had been kicked out, and they had two guys in the band who looked like they should be in a clash, but nobody knew who they were, and then um, they played Leicester de Montford Hall, and Joe Strummer had heard this single we put out called "Awol" by the Three Johns, you know, and he's he's very uh, hands-on Strummer, and uh, we were very excited to go and support the Clash, but it's kind of the the period of the Clash that the Clash don't even talk about. So there's this, my wife bought me a kind of big giant orange Clash book for Christmas, you know, a coffee table book about the Clash, which is kind of hilarious in itself. But there's a lot of, you know, it's, I find it quite interesting because there's a lot of stories in there and stuff and good photos. And uh, they just don't mention that album or or that that period when they did, I forget, this Cut the Crap, the album was called, which is a, Terrible thing to call an album when everyone just realizes it's crap almost as soon as it came out. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was funny. It was nice. He was really friendly though, and I met, I met him a number of times over the years. And I actually opened for him in Chicago. I think it was probably the last time he played here before he died. He was with the Mescaleros, 
I did this three-piece Skull Orchard thing with just me and Alan from the Wacos and Steve Goulding, who plays with the Meekons and Wacos, Graham Parker. He, he was drumming, and a lot of the songs are about Newport, though, from that project. So I did this song, Pill Sailor, which is actually kind of about the guy who owned TJ's, Johnny Socola. You know, people about people kind of like getting off the boat and forgetting to get back on again and, you know, having a wild night out in Newport and fathering children. And, and, uh, I was th while we were playing it, he wasn't there at the sound check, and we just went on stage. And it was the Metro it was packed out. It was great, you know, good club. The Metro. first building I ever went in in Chicago was the Metro with the Three Johns back in '85, and it was a really, you know, big night. And I was just thinking, oh, I hope I get to talk to him. That'd be really nice to sort of see him, you know. And then as I was thinking that, my bass player's looking at me, sort of going uh, uh, jerking his head, and uh, and there's Joe Strummer standing. I'm singing. I said, this song's about South Wales, and I did the like usual boring preambles I do to my songs that last about half an hour. And uh, he was standing there kind of looking at me, just going like, and waving his arms in the air and stuff. And it was it was fantastic. It's like, wow, Joe Strummer's like acknowledging we exist. And then afterwards, we he did his gig. And I thought it was actually, actually, I really thought it was great because it was, I'd never seen it with the Mescaleros. And it was, I'd heard some of the records and I'd never been really swept away by his solo stuff. And then, Seeing him play it, it suddenly struck me that I would seen the clash many times, but it was always like a kind of some sort of riot going on, you know, and it was just like so intense and so crowded, like Beatlemania or something. You couldn't really hear the music and they were just like slugging their way through it. And it was this was kind of almost reflective Joe, you know. And he I was up in the up in the VIP section with a constant supply of margaritas and it was like i'm having a really good time and there's joe strummer and he's playing like london calling and then then he did straight to hell and did this real kind of extended like sort of he was almost toasting at the end you know just going on and on and on and we were backstage afterwards and we had a chat with him and it's, i was talking to his wife who was very very lovely and sort of sweet and she was i said i thought i was he said, what do you think of it? I said, I thought it was fantastic. I said, better than The Clash, I thought. And she said, really? Do you think so? I was going like, I thought, well, I was thinking, I thought it was, I had more fun watching this than I ever had watching The Clash because it was just like a really nice vibe, the whole thing. And she said, well, would you tell him? Because he doesn't, he doesn't really know what it's like, you know, so he's not very sure of himself. And I said, oh, I'll tell him. I went over, oi, Joe, that was better than The Clash. And he went, <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing about that night was he decided to name our band because I said what's the name of your band I said well it's John Langford it's probably John Langford and Scholar she goes no I've got a name for your band it should be written in the chrome of a 1950s American Cadillac and he says I'm going to write it down I don't, don't look at it but I write it down on a piece of paper and then you look at it tomorrow and see what you think and we wrote down this piece on a piece of paper and Steve Goulding grabbed it and put it in his pocket. And then we went went, went round the corner and said, like, what's he written? Let's have a look. <laughs> and it was Long Gone City, which I have to think is one of the worst names for a band. <laughs> <laughs> but it was nice that he went to the trouble of naming us. But, but I'm not, I don't think we'll ever be called Long Gone City. <laughs> It's amazing to think that Joe Strummer at that point in his life would have uh, problems with confidence. I think he got a bit of a beating after the clash split up. I think they were, they were all very confused and 
didn't know quite what to do. Yeah, it's I can understand. I can understand that. I mean, they were very successful for a bit. I can't understand that because I've never been very successful. But he was very good at just not being a rock star. But he was, you know, he kind of was a rock star. But he was very good at being doing the opposite. I like that about him. He was just like playing music all the time. And he had a little boombox with him. He was playing cassettes. And we were sitting with him. Going, Listen to this, you know. It's fantastic. Yeah, really interesting. And I like that. There's a film called uh, West Weight of the World documentary. I think Don Letts made it. And they were all interviewed, and they all seemed like, you know, pretty decent blokes. But Strummer's just kind of different. The other ones are talking about it. You know, like, that's when we did this. And, the, you know, and it's kind of this history of the clash that's fairly regular. And then every time Strummer comes on, he's just like a little kid, and he's talking about really kind of, Amazing things like being in New York for the first time and looking out the window, the taxi, and it being like a movie. And you know, he's just, he's, you feel that he was very excitable, you know. He had that right, even right at the very end, he was still very. I felt sad that he died, it was very sad, but also I just felt he was like on the cusp of something, and that punk rock didn't really have a an elder statesman that was actually worth anything. You know, who's actually making a, who's still making good music. I mean, there's people like kind of living off their old reputations or people like the police who weren't really anything to do with punk rock. But no one really made it, you know, from that generation. There's no one who can f fill a decent-sized hall, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's so strange. It's like that music was so out there that it's very, a lot of the people I really like are just like in the same position as me now. You know, it's just it's they're still struggling along as musicians. It's not, and then there's people from the generation before and the generation after are kind of huge superstars. And I was kind of hoping that Strummer might have, you know, I don't know if he'd been comfortable with that, but it would be nice to have one person you really <laughs> liked from the punk rock era who was actually successful, but which uh, <laughs> was not to be. Yeah, with the Mekons, it was just a, we've been kind of fiddling around with synthesizers, and we never really split up. But we've you know been on a major label on Virgin, and that was a disaster. And we were kind of wondering what to do. And we'd started trying to piece something back together, and we were playing with like drum machines and doing this kind of weird mutant sort of folk stuff. And uh, we had a violin player and Dick Taylor from the Pretty Things. Had started playing guitar with us, but the gigs were kind of like a bit of a bit of a mess because it was a drum machine, and then we didn't. I didn't want to play the drums. I was a drummer in the original Mekons, but then because of the minor strike, I was away with the Three Johns in Europe, and Tom Tom just said, "You mind? I've got got this guy Steve Goulding." I was going, "Steve Goulding? He's like the best drummer ever." And he's playing with a gang of four. And I said, "Yeah, no." And he said, "Well, you might you might come and do some gigs with us, Vastin." He's got this friend Lou, and I was going, Lou, oh yeah, who used to be in the Damned and Treat Back. So we we got we got them, and I I missed the first two gigs. They did a couple of gigs without me because I was off in Italy or something. And uh, when I came back, there was this weird little band existed. It was really good, so we started going out and the Johns as well. It's incredible. It's only like a period of about six months, but looking back on it, it seems like a really long time. We did a lot of a lot of gigs, a lot of them. with Billy Bragg as well. Um, did a great one with the three Johns and Billy Bragg and Gus Sinan in 
sort of South West Wales down by Swansea. And it was a, you know, big kind of miners community centre. And uh, <laughs> they had a Christmas, they had some sort of Easter pageant in there where they had a cross. And so Billy finds this cross and he's saying, like, oh, you've got to get up on that. And then halfway through my set, wheel you out on the cross playing a guitar solo. And it's like, <laughs> so, and you got to, it's like, sort of Baptist, good Baptist people in South Wales. <laughs> I'm not sure how overjoyed they were with it. So the, the younger people quite liked it, but it caused a bit of offence, I think. But it was punk rock, you know. But yeah, we did a lot of lot of gigs for the miners. We used to, Billy used to take us out on the road because he was, he was huge. After the miners' strike, the Red Wedge thing went out and suddenly he became like this, you know, what everything Bob Dylan didn't want to be. You know, he was like the voice of socialist youth and, you know, he was actually really good at it, though. He was good at articulating stuff, and he was really good at talking between the songs. And he was very popular, and I, I liked him. Billy was always really nice to us. In fact, I played with him in San Francisco in October, and it was great. Really nice to see him. But um, you know, we, we his whole thing was he people just wanted him on his own, and so he'd be playing like Glasgow Barrowlands to like two and a half thousand people. When I first met him, he was just like driving around with him and Andy Kershaw used to drive around in the car. But uh, it turned into, you know, the Three Johns were like his pet band. And we would go and we'd be, we'd open up to a two and a half thousand people who couldn't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> but then we'd get a lovely dinner and we'd stay in a really nice hotel and he'd pay us really well and we'd, get, and we'd hang out. And it was, that was the gig tonight, lads. All right. Yeah, it was great, Bill. Thanks. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of Scottish people wanted, wanted to kill us. <laughs> but no, he, he was he was good. Billy was good. But he did a lot during the minor strike as well. But it was just, you know what? I, I think about that more and more. And then Econ's first sort of comeback album, whatever, was called Fear and Whiskey. And all the songs on that, are, it's all about the minor strike. Everyone calls it our kind of country and western album. And it's, I don't know. It's really to me. It's all about, all about that time. It was a real. It was a really. It's a really interesting position to be in when you're like the, you're the enemy of your government, and not just you, but you know, families and you know the miners and the, we. I mean, we we weren't going to go out and sort of stand on the picket lines, be art school posers. So playing the gigs was a great way of doing it. You know, raising money. I just it was. We actually raised money in it. Remember we went on a, some TV show and they cut the mic off. John Hyatt, the singer in The Three Johns, said, this is for all the miners who are returning to work. It's not your turkeys that need stuffing. <laughs> 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 and they said, well, Jules Holland came on and said, we've had some complaints about the last band, but then again, we seem to have complaints every week. <laughs> I had a kind of moment when I was thinking about making visual art again and I hadn't done it for a long time and I was an art student who formed, went, joined a punk band back in 1976 and then we were like too busy and I'd done artwork for fanzines and stuff like that but I never seriously thought about making visual art and exhibiting it and a guy in town called Tony Fitzpatrick who's done all, all Steve Earle's covers Ever since Steve got out of jail, Tony's been doing his covers, and he's a really good 
funny guy and I met him and he'd seen some drawings I'd done and he was just like, you should do this, man. I'll give you an exhibition at my space. And I was, well, what would I do? And I was back in Newport. And as I said, there's a big art college in Newport. It used to be right in the center of town and it was kind of the hub of the town and the life of the city. So some idiot moved it out to a campus outside of town in Killeen and then some other idiot decided what we should do is just do computer art. We'll just offer the course. The whole fine art course will now just be computer art, so there'll be no printmaking, painting, sculpture, nothing. So and I happened to go to their final show just to have a look out of interest because I was in Newport, and it was it was just really depressing because it was just there was a bunch of kids learning to make. I mean, this is like 93 or something like that. So the technology wasn't very good, and every, every bit of art was just like, so governed by the appalling software that was available. You know, I mean, maybe it was the start of something that's quite would be quite interesting now, but it just felt like this total cop-out, and it was just like, this is really trendy, stupid, futuristic, like, thought for the sake of it. And I thought, I want to, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to make little rectangular wooden objects that you hang on your wall called a painting. I'm going to see if there's any. I'm going to see if there's any life in that because I've been told around the same time some members of I'm having an interesting conversation with some members of Wire, that band who were telling me that they understood why me and Sally would still write songs, but we had to realize that you know the song was actually dead. There were there would there would be no songs anymore because there was only future music now. I thought, well, future music, what's that? I bet future music's going to sound very dated in about 15 <laughs> years. And it does. And Wire went back to writing songs and playing their old songs. <laughs> but there was this, this moment of madness after sort of acid house and techno, you know, techno-y sort of period. It was just, oh, come on, really? And it's like everyone's, you know, we're going to be modern now. Yeah, and punk, I'd done that. I did that with punk. I thought we'd, we'd destroyed everything and we were starting from scratch and inventing the wheel. And I realized what a stupid idea that was and how you were always part of a massive tradition and, and how cyclical it is. And, you know, so that was that's why my paintings are like they are. But I felt like they could be, I felt like the reason I didn't, I, I wrote songs for that time, but I couldn't make paintings. And I felt like I went to a pretty academic kind of a, university fine art education and I was muscled up on the critical faculties but yet paralyzed when it came to making anything myself so and the Mekons were always very good at saying no no that's not good that's a bad idea and there's always some person who has to kind of put their stick their neck out and say shall we do that and this is usually that was my role was to suggest things and then have my head cut off and no nah, no nah, it's implicitly reactionary yeah but <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I just, I felt, well, hang on, art as well is different to music because it's it seemed like it had to be a solitary activity. But I was on my own at the time. I'd moved to Chicago and I didn't have a band around me. So it became this thing where I could, I could do something I'd wanted to do for a long time and it made sense. But the only way I could actually make the visual art was to think about it as like songwriting. And I thought of a form and I thought like little wooden rectangles that you hang on a wall could be, like a three-minute punk song, you know. I could think of them in the same sort of way. And what, what, what do I like about our song? 
could I put that into? Can I make a picture that was like that? I met Johnny Cash about four times, I think. Oh, yeah, it was four times we met him, and uh, mostly because of Mark Riley, who was the guitarist in The Fall, when he was very young, and we became mates when he had a band called The Creepers, and I produced him, and then one day we were talking, and he just said, I've been listening to all this Johnny Cash stuff. Do you like Johnny Cash? I was going, oh, yeah, I love Johnny Cash, but, you know, I always, I always liked Johnny Cash because he was quite visible in England. I didn't like country and western music, and I was just at that time getting into what I thought was like country and western music, like Jody Lewis's stuff, and then um, Merle Haggard, Ernest Tubb, George Jones, and I'd never heard any of that stuff. And I was getting into that, and Johnny Cash, I thought he was like Elvis, like a kind of rockabilly guy, you know, I didn't I didn't equate him with that honky-tonk thing at all. And then Mark said, you should listen to, oh no, you should really listen to some of these albums, they're really good. I've been listening to him driving my car. We should do an album of just us singing Johnny Cash songs. And I was going, wow, that'd be weird. <laughs> <laughs> and people might not like it very much. And uh, so then we, we, I listened to it and I was like, oh my God, yeah, this would be perfect. And it just fitted right in with kind of what we were doing at the time. And and uh, I, I suggested that we'd get some other people in so it wasn't just me and him singing all the songs. And then... Uh, it turned into a, then I said, why would we do this? Let's make it into a benefit album for something. And we were both wanted to do it for AIDS research, which was a huge issue at the time. And we had a lot of friends who were, you know, affected directly by that. So we did an album for the Terence Higgins Trust called Till Things Are Brighter. And after we'd had the brilliant idea of doing it, we saw Johnny Cash was playing at the Manchester Apollo. And Mark said, come over, we'll go and meet him. I'll call up. We used to both do gig reviews for the Record Mirror because we were like D-list celebrities. So we said, we, we, we'll get in and we'll go and talk to him. So talk to his manager and everything. We went backstage at the Manchester Apollo. I remember, I remember Johnny Cash walking towards us for the, you know, it's 50 yards wide this stage. It's huge. And he's one side and his manager's pointing at us and we're both just rubbing our hands on our jeans and trying to get our palms dry because we know he's going to shake hands with us. It's, but he was just really, really friendly and really nice. And uh, we had a really good chat with him. Mark asked him if he was going to vote in the election. It was 88, and it was uh, it was Dukakis was running against uh, Bush Senior, wasn't it? Yeah, and he, he, said, uh, he said, I think a man's vote is between him and his conscience and the ballot box. And uh, so, 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 so you're not, not going to tell us who you're going to vote for them? I'm like, well, sure as hell ain't voting for Bush. <laughs> <laughs> Which was cool. Then I met him again in, met him again when the album came out and he did a thing for the BBC. He played the Albert Hall with Nick Lowe and Elvis Costello were all up on stage with him and we got, got in free. And it, the weirdest thing he said to me that night was, so we're doing, yeah, the album's out. And he did a little interview on the BBC and he mentioned all the people on the album, which was really funny because he said, and Mary Mary from the Gay Bikers on Acid. Cause my brilliant idea was to get Mary Mary from the Gay Bikers on Acid, who was a bloke, to do Boy Named Sue. And Cash saw the humor in that and, and then also, you know, said the words Gay Bikers on Acid in British TV in the 1980s, <laughs> which was fantastic. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> then he says to me, I said, he said, so when's the record out? I said, well, officially next week, 
we're going to have a record release party on Saturday night. And this was like the previous like Sunday night or something. And he said, I wish I'd known. June and I would have stayed over for that. And was, <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, are you serious? It's like, oh. ah, missed opportunity. But then I thought the idea of shepherding June and Johnny around some pub in Islington might have been a bit nerve-wracking, you know. <laughs> What am I going to do with this, these two? You know, but, but he was lovely. And then he, the last time I saw him, before I moved to the States, I never met him again. I saw him play a number of times when I was after I moved to the States in 92. But I think it was 91, he played in the Newport Centre in Newport, which is like, you know, where the big swimming pool is with the slide, where the urban myth is somebody glued razor blades inside the slide, so everyone's slashed to death. I don't think that ever really happened, but... But uh, he played there, and I, I, he was that unfashionable at the time that, you know, I said, I got, oh, I got a plus one for Johnny Cash. Anyone want to go? People like, that's old people music, you know. So I thought, I'll take an old person. I'll take my mother. And uh, her and Johnny Cash, we went backstage in the dressing room with Johnny Cash, and they had a lovely chat. And it was really nice. It was the best time I, best time I met him because I didn't have to say anything. So Johnny and my mum had a little chat and then they talked about his house in Jamaica and she'd been on the coach trip to the homes of the stars when she'd been on holiday in Jamaica. And she'd been, yeah, we were outside. We went to your house. He said, oh, well, we had a terrible burglary then. Oh, we were burgled last year. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, well, we were. They chatted away, these two, two older people. And it was it was really nice to watch. And then, then he kissed her on the lips. <laughs> Before he went on stage, he apologized because he had to end the conversation and go on stage. And with June Carter about six foot away, he, he kissed my mother on the lips. And <laughs> and uh, uh, it's just like she never, ever gave me any shit about anything again after that. That was it. <laughs> and when I moved to the States, I think she she imagined that if I had any problems, anything bad happened... I just called Johnny Cash up, and then fortunately, nothing did bad did happen, so I didn't have to call him. But <laughs> I wouldn't have known how to get in touch with him anyway. But. I appreciate you meeting up with me here. And, uh, nice to meet you, Otis. I hope to be back in Nashville soon. Well, I hope you get down there and uh, yeah, yeah. be sure and say hey when you do. I'll come on out. Well, yeah. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank John Langford for sitting down with me at the hideout in Chicago. You can find out everything you need to know about John at johnlangford.de. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.